Well, good morning, Kenmore Church. Oh, that was awesome. I don't even get that in youth. Uh, <laughs> uh, as Zelvin introduced me, my name is Liam, and I have the privilege of being the, the youth pastor here at Kenmore. Uh, and yeah, as Zelvin said, I, I love my job. I love the teenagers. Uh, it's legit the best job in the church. Uh, where else do you get to spend your Fridays running around with a whole bunch of teenagers in this hall? Uh, all right, so, so this morning... Uh, I really just have one question that I want to ask you guys. What would you do if God called you into something that was exponentially bigger than anything that could come from you? What would you do if God called you to something that was outside your ability, outside your scope, outside your very understanding of how your world operates? What would you do if God called you to something that if he didn't show up in, then it just wasn't going to work? And look, there's a couple of ways you can respond to that question, right? Maybe you're, you're sitting here this morning and that thought just excites you like nothing else. Uh, that you would just love to have a clear calling on your life, a, a clear pathway ahead of you that you can just faithfully walk out in. But if you're anything like me, you'll stop. And you'll start processing that question a little bit more. And it'll kind of scare you. Because think about all the things God could ask you. I mean, what do you do if God calls you to drop everything and move to Africa? Uh, What do you do if God calls you to leave your job? What do you do if God calls you to something that you just know you can't do? Well, look, maybe you're sitting here this morning and your first response to this question is actually, no. No, God, you, you can't use me. Not, not you can't use people in general, you just couldn't use me specifically. And maybe it's because you feel like you're, you're too far gone in your brokenness and your sin or you, you don't have the, the expertise or, or the understanding or the skills or the knowledge of your Bible to do what God is calling you to that God wouldn't use you to change a tire, let alone change the world. Or look, maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum, right? And you have been following Jesus for a lifetime. Like you went to Sunday school with Moses. And the, the reason you think that, uh, that God couldn't use you or call you today is because he already did that. That you can look back at your life and you can see clear moments where God did call you into something and you faithfully stepped out into that. But it was like over time, God sort of stopped doing that. And so you stopped stepping out in faith. And over time, the adventure that was Christianity sort of devolved into just doing church. Look, maybe you're here this morning and you don't don't really know Jesus at all. And so the idea that he would want to use you, that he would call you into anything at all, kind of blows your mind. You see, wherever you fall on that spectrum this morning, I want you to keep asking yourself that question. What would I do if God called me? Because I truly and honestly believe that is exactly what he is doing. That we serve a God who calls us to step out into new things all the time. And look, for me, this isn't even a hypothetical, right? Uh, I sort of look back at the last 12 months of my life and Uh, For me, God called me out of a job that I loved. He he called me out of a job I'd spent seven years studying for. Uh, 
with good financial prospects and uh, a, a bright career pathway ahead of me. And he called me out of that space into a ministry that I just feel completely outside of my depth. And I say that at the start, not to boast or to brag, because I know from personal experience, it is difficult to grapple with this idea that God would want to use or call you at all. And so what I want to do this morning is I actually want to jump into the Bible, and I want to look at the life and the calling of Gideon, a man who really, really struggled with this idea that God would want to use him. And I, I want to sort of break apart what this calling looks like and see if we can work out what it would look like in our lives as well. Does that sound good? Awesome. Uh, so if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6 tonight, uh, this morning. You can see I, I preach at youth. Uh, <laughs> Judges chapter 6. Uh, and while you're turning there, let me just set the, the biblical context. So where we're jumping into things, uh, Israel has sort of well and truly established itself in the promised land. Uh, so, you know, the whole 40 years wandering in the wilderness is done and dusted at this point. Uh, and actually, everyone who did cross over the River Jordan has passed away now. And so what that means is all the signs and wonders God performed during that season, you know, the fire by day, the cloud by night, the, the manna from heaven, all, all those amazing miracles, they, they've sort of become distant memory at this point. And because of the, the distance from those signs and wonders, God's people find themselves in, in the season of just going through the cycle of being close to God, of knowing God and trusting God before falling away into brokenness and sin, before eventually realizing they need God and coming running back to him, and the whole thing just repeats over and over and over again. And that doesn't sound anything at all like Christianity today, does it? All right, Judges chapter 6, verse 1. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east would come up against them. So we start with this image of Israel being brutally oppressed at the hands of Midian. That because um, Israel had turned away from God, because they had turned away from God's plan for their lives, God had actually allowed them to fall into the hands of the enemy. And this isn't like a raid here and then. This is full-blown oppression. They were told in verse 3 that they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as, as far as Gaza. They'd leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep, no ox, no donkey. Uh, they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They, they would be like locusts in number. That both they and their camels could not be counted. And so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And so the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So in the midst of this oppression, not as a first response, but as a, a final cry for help, God's people eventually call out to the Lord and go, God, we need you. We need your help. We need your rescue. We need you to do what we know you've done in the past. And in response to these cries, we're told in verse 7 that God sends them a prophet. How do you think Israel felt about that one? <laughs> 
They go, God, we need you, we need your help. And instead of God sending them rescue or salvation, he sends them a sermon. It would be like your car breaking down and you phone RACQ and instead of them sending you a mechanic or a tow truck, they send you a little pamphlet on, on how to drive better. <laughs> but, but see, what, what's happening here is, is God is fully aware that all these external situations, the fact that they're hiding in caves, the fact that there's no food, that the, the fact that the Midianites keep on coming in and raiding, that's not the heart of the issue. No, the heart of the issue here is actually an issue with Israel's heart. See, what, what you find when you read the, the verses leading up to chapter 6, right, is Israel has just come out of this period of 40 years of unprecedented peace and prosperity. And in the midst of the blessing of what God had allowed upon his people, Israel had drifted into complacency towards God. And over time, that complacency towards God had drifted into indifference until eventually indifference transformed itself into forgetfulness and you have the people of God putting up idols to Baal and Asherah alongside their altars to the one true God. And look, this isn't the point of tonight's message, but of this morning. I'll get there eventually. Uh, this isn't the point of this morning's message, but... Have you ever been there? Have you ever gotten so comfortable in the blessing of what God has allowed in your life that you wake up one morning, you look around, and you realize God isn't in it anymore? That you still come to Sundays, I still come to church most Sundays, and you still worship God with your words, but when you look at where you spend your time and your energy and your attention and your money, you realize you are worshiping the things of this world. You are worshipping your, your bank account or your family or your career or your golf handicap just as much as you are worshipping the one true God. See, the, the truth of the matter is God is far more concerned with the condition of your heart than he is with your circumstances. God, God is far more concerned with the relationship you have with him than he is about your comfort. And so what that means is sometimes God will allow brokenness in your life. Sometimes God will allow the Midianites to come in and ravage the promised land because he knows that it'll bring you to the place where you cry out to help from God. That Psalm 119 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. And so when the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet. The prophet said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and I gave you their land and I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. Do not worship the God of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not listened to me that God turns to his people. It's like, guys, you need to remember. You need to remember who I am. You need to remember what I have done. And you need to trust me. That is the message that God sends to his rebellious children. 
And, and you know what's really interesting? We're given no indication as to how they respond. That before we know whether or not this message has actually changed the heart of God's people, God has already started preparing the rescue that he will deliver for them. And so verse 11, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah. And the angel of the Lord said, you get a car, and you get a car, and you get... <laughs> oh, it, it wasn't funny the first time, and it's, it's still not funny this time. <laughs> no, uh, wrong Oprah. Um, the angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Oprah that belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. All right, so, so we finally meet the man of the hour, Gideon. And where we find him, we're told he is threshing wheat in a wine press. So, so I need to ask, has anyone here ever actually threshed wheat before? No? Awesome. So if I make some stuff up here, it's okay if it's not 100% accurate. Uh, no, threshing wheat is this process, right? It's the process by which you separate the chaff from the grain, uh, the, the part of the wheat that you don't want from the part of the wheat that you do want. Uh, and the way you would do this in Gideon's day is you would beat the wheat and then you would throw it in the air so that the lighter chaff could drift away in the wind and the heavier grain would fall back down to be collected. Uh, and so because of how this process works, you would normally do it outdoors. Uh, you would do it somewhere exposed to the elements, somewhere up high that the wind could actually come and take the chaff away. Uh, and preferably, you'd actually do it somewhere that's overlooking your fields so the chaff could blow away and land in those fields and bless them with nutrients for next year's harvest. The thing is, where we find Gideon, we're told he is threshing wheat in a wine press. And the image you should have of this wine press is it would have been somewhere down low, uh, that the wine press itself would have actually been a pit in the ground. And based on the context, we can assume Gideon's in a cave of some sort. See, Gideon is doing this task that, that should be a part of his ordinary life. He's just not doing it where he's supposed to be. Because of his fear, because of his inability to do anything at all about his present situation, Gideon is hiding. Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. And it's, out, it's in this place of fear that God meets Gideon. That it's out of the pit that God calls Gideon to something more. And so, verse 12, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. To which I think Gideon does a, a 180 and tries to work out uh, who else is standing in the cave with him. Uh, it, it almost sounds like a joke, right? like the angel is actually making fun of Gideon. It'd be like walking up to someone who's five foot nothing, 50 kilograms, and saying, hey there, big stuff. It's a joke, right? Uh, but, but see, what's happening here is God isn't speaking into Gideon's current situation. He's not describing him as he is in the moment. He is speaking into the man that Gideon will become. That God doesn't see Gideon based on how he feels or what he has done, but he speaks life into the man that Gideon could become. And what we find that uh, this is actually a core and fundamental truth of what it looks like when God calls people. That in the upside down economy of God's kingdom, identity will always precede activity. 
that, that who we are in God will always come before what we do for God. And so what that means is where everyone else would look at Gideon, would look at him and call him a coward, would look at him and call him afraid. God comes along and he looks at him, he says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. See, unlike our enemy, right, who will come along and call you predominantly based on who you are and what you have done, God will always come along and he will call you predominantly based on who he is and what he will do in your life. That God looks at you in the fullness of your brokenness, he looks at you in your addiction or your divorce or your rebellion or your, your insecurity, and he doesn't speak those things over you. That God is not a God who speaks condemnation in our lives, but he speaks a better way. That Romans tells us we serve a God who calls the things which are not as though they were. That God will always come along and he will speak into your life and he will turn to, to you and say, the Lord is with you. Mighty man of valor. And there's just one problem. Gideon doesn't buy any of it. <laughs> See, Gideon is still in this place of fear. He's still in this place of brokenness. And to be honest, he's still looking over his shoulder trying to work out who the angel of the Lord is actually speaking to. And what proceeds over the next couple of verses is essentially Gideon trying to argue his way out of being used by God. And at the heart of it, there are, there are three arguments or excuses or, or lies that Gideon believes as to why God can't use him. And they're the same three arguments that you and I use in our lives. And, and the first one is this. Gideon doubts God's ability to act and move in his life. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hands of Midian. That Gideon turns to the angel of the Lord and he goes, look, I heard the sermon that your prophet was preaching. In fact, I've heard from my father and my father's father that you are this God who did amazing things in our past. And look, God, maybe you can do those things today. Maybe you can do signs and wonders and miracles in other people's lives, but, but not me, God. God, maybe you are this God of power. I just have no confidence that power can work in and through my life. Well, church, do we not do the same thing today? Do, do we not hear stories of God doing amazing things? of healings and deliverance from addictions and uh, relationships being restored. And we get fired up about those things. But as soon as we, we turn it and look at it ourselves, we're like, nah, God, you, you can't do that in me. You can't do that through me. That maybe you are a God of power. I just have no confidence that power can work in and through my life. And look, God has a response to this, right? It's just not the response that Gideon was after. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Save Israel out of Midian's hands, am I not sending you? And I just love that because Gideon doesn't get a theological discourse as to why his views of the world are wrong. 
Uh, He doesn't get berated for his lack of faith in God. Uh, It's almost like God doesn't meet Gideon in his question at all. See, the truth of the matter is God doesn't need Gideon's confidence. He doesn't need Gideon to have this amazing saint level of faith before he's going to move in his life. All he requires is Gideon's obedience. All he requires is for Gideon to do what he tells him to. That God turns to Gideon, who is so full of doubt, so full of faithlessness, and he says, go. Go in the strength you have because I am sending you. And look, again, this is my story, right? Uh, When I stepped into this role four months ago, I wasn't confident. And if I'm being honest, I'm still not that confident that uh, as I stand up here and give my third sermon on a Sunday, I'm still not sure how much of this is actually me doing stuff or how much of it's actually God working in me. And I say that not so that you come and pat me on the back afterwards and tell me I'm doing a good job, but I actually want you guys to know that confidence in God is something you have to wrestle with. That we're told we're supposed to be these, these super confident Christians who never doubt, never have any moments where we have like unbelief, but, but that's not what I see in the Bible and that's not what I see in my life. See, look, if I'm being a little bit bold for a second, maybe if you're living this life and you haven't had moments of doubt, if you are following after Jesus and you haven't felt completely out of your death, you haven't had moments where you've needed to go to God and say, look, God, it doesn't feel like you're showing up here. And if you don't, it's all going to come crumbling down around me. Maybe that's because you've stopped stepping into places that God has called you into. Maybe it's because you stopped taking those steps of faith. See, what's supposed to happen is God says go, and we just go. We pick up our doubt, we pick up our questions and our lack of faith, and we just follow after Jesus. That if he tells us to go, we just go. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. That God doesn't need your confidence, but he requires your obedience. All right, so the next thing Gideon doubts was his own ability. Verse 15, pardon me, my Lord, because Gideon's super polite. Uh, but, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. That, that Gideon's next argument as to why God can't use him is because he doesn't have what it takes. And he goes, look, God, I'm not strong enough. I don't have the skills that are required to do this sort of mission. And I don't know if you've looked around, but I don't exactly have an army with me. That he feels like he doesn't have enough, that he's going to somehow hamper what God is doing. And look, I don't think Gideon's too far off the mark here. See, you'll read some commentaries, right? And they'll say things like, oh, well, Gideon just didn't know his true strength. Uh, that, you know, his years working as a farmer would have built up some muscle, that he probably had this hidden genius for leading people or for military strategy. And, and look, maybe there's truth in that, right? But it's not really what the Bible tells us. No, the Bible tells us that Gideon was a man living in times of unprecedented oppression at the hands of Midian. That Gideon was a man who was fearful and afraid, and he was hiding in a wine that Gideon did belong to the small half-tribe of Manasseh, and he probably did belong to the, the least tribe, or the least family in that tribe. When Gideon says, I am the weakest and the least, 
I actually believe him. See, the truth of the matter is God doesn't need Gideon's strength. He doesn't need Gideon to be this amazing military genius or or to have this army already pre-made for him. God doesn't need Gideon's strength. He just needs Gideon to show up. And God will do the rest. And the Lord answered, I will be with you. Gideon, I will fight your battles for you. I will be alongside you. I will do this. I will be with you and you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. And look again, is this not the same argument that you and I use in our lives when we try and convince ourselves and convince God that he can't work in our lives? There we go, look, God, I don't have the time or or the resources or the energy to step up and serve in ministry. God, I I don't know enough of my Bible. I don't know enough apologetics to share my faith with that guy at work. God, if I just had a little bit more time, a little bit more energy, a little bit more money, if the kids had left the house, if, if I just knew more of my Bible, if I just went to Bible college, then I could do what you're calling me to. But God, not right now. God, right now, I am the weakest and the least, and I can't do this. But see, again, God doesn't need what we bring to the table. What it looks like when we partner with God, it's like, okay, do you remember when you were a kid, right? And your dad would call you to work on a project with him. Uh, For me, I've got this really clear image of dad standing behind the bonnet of the car doing something in there. I don't know what. Uh, And he would call me over and ask me to hold the torch. And it was the most stressful thing I ever had to do. Because no matter where I aimed the torch, I was always missing the spot Dad was trying to see, and I was like shining the wrong thing. And, you know, he'd send me to get a screwdriver, I'd bring back the wrong type. He'd send me to go get a spanner, I'd bring back the wrong size. That I did nothing at all to help in that process. In fact, I made it more difficult, more timely, more irritating for my dad than it actually needed to be. And yet, I would go back inside, And mom would turn to me and say, what were you doing in the garage? And with a massive smile on my face, I would turn to her and I'd say, we were fixing the car. Like I had anything to do with it whatsoever. But you see, it it delighted my father to invite me into that space. And as a son, I was delighted to be invited into that space. That's what it looks like when we partner with God. That God doesn't need us to do anything. He doesn't need anything we bring to the table, but somehow he chooses to work in and through us. That 1 Corinthians tells us that God chooses the foolish things of this world to put the wise to shame. And he chooses the weak things of this world to put the powerful to shame. And look, can I just say, it is way easier for me to get up here and say that than it is to actually live it out. See, what I've experienced for the last four months in stepping into this role is like, I get up every morning and it's like, surely there has been some mistake here. (laughs) Uh, And every time I do anything that that even remotely resembles pastoring someone, it's like, I get these little voices going, you can't do this. You don't have the skills or the training or the expertise. You're you're just faking it. And soon everyone is going to find out. And every day, I need to turn to those voices. And I don't fight them by saying that I have what it takes, that I do have the skills. No, I turn to them and I say, look, it's actually worse than you think. That I am weak and I am unable, but I serve a God who is strong and he is able. And if he wants to work in and through me, then he can do that. 
That church, our brokenness is no obstacle to God. That God only works through broken instruments because that's all he has to work with. That in his book, Experiencing God, Henry Blackaby says, the truth is, God can do anything he pleases through an ordinary person who is fully dedicated to him. That God comes to us in our weakness and our brokenness, and he says, I will be with you. And that is enough. All right, so evidently at this point, Gideon runs out of questions. Uh, at least he stops talking for a bit. Uh, and I, look, I, I sort of feel like there's a third question that, that Gideon has, has asked, but it's, it's gone unanswered. Okay, God, how? Because you know how much of the, the plan Gideon has here, right? Nothing. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't have like some grand campaign plan for how they're going to kick out the Midianites. He doesn't have a, a real strategy at all. In fact, you sort of read the story and get this idea that Gideon doesn't even realize he's talking to an angel. Uh, see, what happens in the next couple of verses, and I'll summarize for the sake of time, is um, Gideon turns to the angel and goes, look, if I found favor in your sight, so God, if this is really you, let me prepare a gift for you. Angel says yes. Gideon runs away, makes like a little picnic uh, hamper, brings it back, angel of the Lord touches it, and the whole thing bursts up in flames. And something clicks in Gideon's head, and he, and he falls on his face, and he says, alas, O Lord, my God, for I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. That Gideon didn't even realize he'd been talking to God this entire time. And I just love that, because God doesn't need our understanding. He doesn't need us to have the full picture. He doesn't need us to know where this path he's leading us on is going to end. He just needs us to take one more step. That's all that Gideon gets, right? That the only command he gets at the end of this verse is that he needs to go and he needs to knock over the altars in his father's house. He doesn't get the seven-step strategic plan. He doesn't, nothing he's instructed that has anything to do with the Midianites at all. But it's just like, that's all that God gives him. And look, the way I see it, we're never going to get all the details. That yes, we have the Holy Spirit, and yes, we should pray and, and ask God for guidance as to where he wants us to step out into, but we can't let a lack of clarity prevent us from stepping out in faith. That we have to get to the point where we just accept that God doesn't need our understanding. He just needs us to take the next step. So that, that is the calling of Gideon. A man whose life was marked by questions and doubts. And yet, God used Gideon in a way that was exponentially bigger than anything that could come from him. See, at the start of Gideon's life, we're told there were so many Midianites, you couldn't even count their camels. And yet, by the time we get to Judges 8, we're told that Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise their head again. And so during Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. That God did exactly what he promised he would do through Gideon and he used him in a way that Gideon could never ask or, or have imagined was possible. And if you are sitting here this morning and you have breath in your lungs, I promise you God wants to and he will use you in the exact same way. So my question for you this morning is, what is God calling you into? Or to make it even easier, do you know what your next step is? 
Because I promise God has a calling on your life and a next step he wants you to take. And look, maybe it is to drop everything and move to Africa. Maybe it is to leave your job. Heck, maybe God is calling you to become a youth pastor. And if you can work that one out, please send help. <laughs> but look, it's not God's call on everyone's life. It's not. Maybe your next step is to talk to a colleague at work about Jesus. That God has been putting that on your heart and you've sort of been pushing it off because you don't feel like you know enough of your Bible. Maybe like getting your next step is to go and knock over the idols in your life. That, that before God is going to do anything more through you, he wants you to go and clean up your house. Maybe your next step is to get baptized or to step up and serve or to start tithing. Look, I don't know what God is calling you to. But God does. And I truly and honestly believe if you just go to him and you ask him, he will reveal that next step to you. In fact, some of you sitting here this morning probably have uh, a stirring on your heart or just this thing sitting here, and that is the Holy Spirit trying to convict you right now as to what that next step looks like. But see, whatever it is, God has a calling on your life. He has a step he wants you to take. And you can have questions, you can have doubts, that's fine. God turns to your doubts and says, look, I don't need your confidence, but I require your obedience. That God turns to your feelings of weakness and inadequacy and he says, look, it's okay, I don't need your strength. I just need you to show up. That God turns to your questions about how in the world this is even going to begin to work. And he says, it's okay, I don't need your understanding. I just need you to take one more step. And at the end of the day, God turns to you and he says the exact same words he spoke to you. The same words that were spoken to Moses at the burning bush. The same words that were spoken to Joshua as he crossed over the river Jordan. The same words that Jesus spoke over his disciples in the Great Commission. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That God is with us, church. And no matter what he calls us into, we can step boldly into it because he is with us. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you have a calling on each and every one of our lives. That you have a next step that you want us to take. And Lord, whatever that is, whatever it looks like, whatever big or small it is, would you just give us the confidence to step out into it. To trust that you are with us, to trust that you are God and you are leading us where you would. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In your mighty name, amen.